listening to The Clambake, a KBGA podcast. With your host, Madeline Broom. Thanks for tuning in to KBGA Missoula 89.9. My name is Madeline Broom, and I am the host of KBGA's newest podcast, The Clambake. Join us every week for important conversations with community members. We'll be talking about Missoula and the university's most pressing issues on this show. This week's guest is Udo Fluke, Director of Cultural and Global Affairs at Arts Missoula. Before joining Arts Missoula, Udo worked for two decades in international program development and intercultural and global education. He was a senior curriculum developer for the National Science Foundation's Resilience Through Intercultural Skills Enhancement, or RISE program, housed at the Salish Kootenai College. Arts Missoula has a mission of connecting art, culture, and community through education, advocacy, and celebration. Thanks for tuning in. Now, here's my conversation with Udo. My name is Udo Fluk. I'm the Director of Global and Cultural Affairs in Arts Missoula. And I have lived in Missoula since 1989. Wow, you got me beat here in Missoula. Uh, so, uh, can you describe for anyone who hasn't uh, been able to kind of engage or work with Arts Missoula at all, can you talk about uh, that organization? Um, Arts Missoula is the designated arts agency of the city, and it offers a variety of services, um, two that are sort of standing out, I think, for their programming, just as far as volume and as far as reach and impact into um, the local K through 12 system is uh, the Spark Arts Program and uh, my program, uh, Global and Cultural Affairs. Um, Arts Missoula hosts various events throughout the year. We are involved in um, fiscally sponsoring uh, organizations. Uh, The Montana Book Festival um, is part of Arts Missoula. Uh, German Fest, um, one of the biggest celebrations of German art and culture every uh, September is, uh, is hosted by Arts Missoula or is put on by Arts Missoula. Um, And you might recall that for the last uh, quarter of a century, um, we have done the um, New Year's, the celebration into the New Year, um, which is first night. And that's also um, organized and hosted by Arts Missoula. And there is a public art component uh, to it. Um, We have a member of our team uh, that is a part of the public art committee, uh, a committee that basically um, looks at um, opportunities to um, create and and identify spaces for a public art display. And so uh, pretty much everything that has to do with arts and culture is 
is uh, coming um, out of our office. That's not to say that there aren't other people that are also very active in this, but we are sort of the, the, the hub, if you will, or the resource uh, center for, for that. I've never heard of a designated arts agency before. Um, are they common? And so you said um, of the city, so is that a, um, where does that designation come from? Um, I think it's sort of by, uh, by what Arts Missoula does and for how long uh, it has done it. Um, Arts Missoula used to be the cultural council um, uh, years ago and then morphed into Arts Missoula. I think it's always difficult uh, to find um, a very precise name that really explains uh, what you do, especially when you have a lot of diversity in your area of what you're doing. It would be an incredibly long uh, title or explanation. Um, the office that oversees uh, sister city uh, development and management, the office that uh, organizes cultural events. I mean, you would have to explain this. And I think that that, um, you know, it's just, it's just uh, no matter how you approach it, uh, the name is always going to be uh, perhaps not capturing at all. Um, I think the Cultural Council, uh, you know, for many people, um, had a certain meaning, but uh, I think Arts Missoula uh, is a much better sort of description of what the office does. Um, Tom Benson is the executive director uh, of Arts Missoula, and you might want to uh, check with him. I mean, he has the institutional memory. Um, I just joined two years ago. Uh, but he has been doing this for a long time. Um, he was already the head of the Cultural Council. And so he really has, um, you know, this, uh, this institutional memory that goes back uh, quite a few years. So let's jump into a little bit more of what you do specifically. Um, so do you want to describe your work with uh, the Global and a Cultural and Cultural Affairs Program? Sure. So uh, Global and Cultural Affairs started in, actually exactly two years ago, in May of 2018. And I think uh, it, the best way to describe how it came about was the need that the city had to have a person um, a go-to person that uh, is, is basically in charge of several things that uh, all have to do with uh, culture and um, cultural education and um, cultural event programming, those kind of things. And so I think that that was sort of the, uh, the idea behind it. Um, in the past, and we have had uh, sister city relations uh, for, um, well, over two decades with our German sister city, Neckargemünd in Germany, and for over three decades 
with our sister city Palmerston North in New Zealand. And while this was always done by, uh, well, by, um, or in Tom's office, and I think Tom Benson did a lot of this in the past, um, you know, he has lots of other things to do. He's the executive director. And so um, I think there was this desire to have a person that would be in charge of that so that, you know, uh, there's, there's one person that communicates, there's one person that collaborates, and there's one person that hosts when, um, when people come over and is sort of in charge of putting a program together. I think that's the, that's the one part of that or the reason why the office was created. But global and cultural affairs basically has four pillars, and I would say that they are equal. Uh, to each other. There isn't one that's more important than the other. There's probably more programming coming out of, uh, you know, the second arm or the fourth arm or whatever at a certain point in time. Uh, right now uh, that we are in a pandemic and we have no um, community programming uh, the way we used to. And by that, I mean that um, I started two years ago uh, with the Worldview Film Series, a collaboration with the Roxy Theater. And that has been very successful. And we had actually uh, a poster done. The poster is always um, designed by Courtney Blazon, a Missoula artist. And uh, we had the movie selected. We were ready to go. And then, of course, uh, COVID hit. Uh, in uh, in February, and so we kind of thought, okay, let's be let's be careful and see what's going on. What is the Roxy going to decide? And then, of course, when the Roxy announced that they would temporarily close uh, in in order to prevent the spread or reduce the spread of COVID nineteen, um, then that took care of the Worldview Film Series. There's also uh, an international community speaker series that um, I inaugurated last year in the fall uh, that also was scheduled to continue this spring. Now those two things are uh, for now um, on the back burner and we hope that we can just roll that uh, into a future program. But um, so right now one could say that uh, the traditional things that we have done as far as community programming aren't happening. Um, the same probably would be true for, um, for uh, sister city activities. There aren't right now, because that would involve international travel, there aren't right now any, um, any groups uh, that are coming um, high school exchange-wise or adult uh, um, visitors that are coming from either sister city, nor are we planning uh, to visit um, either sister city. Uh, but that's mainly because it's out of our hands and it and we are you know in a in an international crisis mode can you describe uh what a sister city is because i've been living in missoula for a while um and i actually had no idea that we had a sister city most of my experience with that is um you know sometimes you drive through a small town and underneath there 
you know, the like, you're entering blank city, they'll have a little sign underneath. But I mean, really, that's the extent of my knowledge of what um, a sister city is and the role that that plays. Sure. And Madeline, don't feel bad at all, because I would, I would bet that if we would ask, if we would do a poll on the street, and we would ask 10 people, uh, very few uh, could name our uh, sister cities. Uh, most people would say, sister what? Uh, no idea that we have that. Um, so I don't think that that's, uh, that that's unusual at all, um, but it shows that there is a great need to inform people and to let people know. And so I think that's the other thing that, and, and those, those offices or those programs are typically not things that uh, you know, become known overnight. Uh, there's probably years and years of cultivating uh, those kind of programs that eventually, if you would do another poll and you would ask uh, another 10 people five years from now, again, keep in mind that I just started in this position two years ago, uh, that if we would do the same poll in five years, then hopefully the number would be higher and more people would recognize uh, that we have sister cities and that there is uh, you know, a cultural and language exchange going on. And, and probably 10 years down the road, uh, we might get the number up to, uh, to a fairly high number. But those are, I think, things that happen over time. Um, yeah. the, the, you wanted me to, uh, to just talk a little bit about the Sister City program and what it is? Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering before we kind of go there, if you could describe uh, the two cities that you said that we have this built this relationship with um, and maybe where they are geographically. I think it would help for anyone listening, you know, maybe who's been able to visit Germany or New Zealand and they might kind of in their mind be able to place where, where it is. Sure. Um, so let's start with Neckargemünd, Germany. Uh, which is geographically uh, right in the heart, in the middle of Germany. Um, it is a small town that is very close to Heidelberg, uh, another big university city in Germany. And um, I have some it, friends going to Heidelberg. <laughs> there you go. So I mean, it's you know, when you say Neckargemünd, probably not too many people uh, will perk up and go, "Oh yeah, I know where that is." But when you mention Heidelberg, uh, it, it's almost in line with, uh, you know, Munich and Frankfurt and Berlin, uh, that people go, oh yeah, Heidelberg, I've heard of that, and, and, and I, you know, know that there's a university or whatever. So um, that is our uh, connection to Germany, and that came about really, uh, like I said, a quarter of a century ago when a, a professor from Heidelberg um, by the name of Erich Pohl, uh, came to Missoula on an exchange and taught uh, at the University of Montana um, uh, for, I don't know, uh, maybe a year or uh, probably even longer than that. But I met uh, Professor Pohl at that time um, and, uh, and we've known each other ever since, as a matter of fact, uh, I just um, recently saw him um, after Christmas uh, in Germany when I was visiting uh, with my family, um, my parents and friends, and had a chance to 
uh, also stop by at Neckargemünd and um, and visit with uh, Professor Pohl. And then there was uh, an exchange that started um, with a professor uh, from the University of Montana that would then go um, to um, to uh, Neckargemünd um, and uh, Jerry Fetz uh, is that professor. And so this, this sort of was um, the, the beginning um, of, uh, well, the, the fairly recent sort of exchange. It, um, it goes back even further than that um, because of a professor in geography um, by the name of Harold Bockermuhl, um, who uh, was a Missoulian, uh, and he studied at Massey University. And Massey University is in Palmerston North. And so there was this connection uh, that goes back even further um, for uh, our uh, connection with um, um, with Palmerston North in New Zealand. So those are the two that both had, and that was my point here, that both had an educational origin. Uh, both were started by people that were teaching and researching um, abroad and made this initial uh, connection. Um, the, the purpose of sister cities uh, and, and why we have them uh, is of course, um, it's sister cities are uh, part of an organization called Sister Cities International. It's a network that Missoula belongs to, and um, it's one of the oldest and largest networks of citizen diplomats in the world. And they foster mutual understanding and respect between nations and their citizens. And that can be done, of course, in many different ways, um, encouraging cultural and educational exchanges for students, um, uh, typically at the high school level uh, in Missoula with Missoula's uh, uh, sister cities, Neckargemünd and Palmerston North, providing opportunities for Missoula citizens and city officials to participate in exchange programs in the fall of 2018, we were fortunate to uh, welcome a delegation uh, of our friends from Palmerston North uh, to Missoula. And those were um, six, six members uh, of that delegation. Um, and uh, it was the first time after, I think, about uh, an eight-year period where there was no exchange going on, so we revived that. And then um, that was sort of an important part. And then um, last year uh, in the spring, we had an opportunity uh, to take a delegation um, that consisted of uh, two Missoula City Council members, several representatives from the Native American community, um, uh, uh, artists. Uh, it was just a, a very diverse group that had a chance to go um, to Palmerston North. And um, so it, it's all about, uh, like I said, um, developing mutual understanding and respect 
learning from each other, um, having a chance to realize that Palmerston North and Missoula are fairly close in, um, in their infrastructure. Uh, they have both a river running through them. So there's lots of similarities. Um, and so, you know, there are issues, if you think about this, uh, uh, transportation, public transportation, uh, healthcare, um, education, um, that, you know, naturally one is curious, how is a, how is a city of about the same size and makeup doing that um, halfway around the world? What are their issues? Uh, how have they found solutions to certain challenges? And can we perhaps, uh, you know, learn from that and improve our own situation? So I think that's the idea, uh, is to, to provide for that um, and, uh, you know, contribute to the planning of such events as German Fest, the aforementioned, or we have New Zealand days every year where um, we celebrate uh, New Zealand culture. There's usually a rugby uh, game that's going on. There's, you know, um, all kinds of activities that I think uh, are, um, you know, are, are really sort of important in this. And um, we kind of, uh, I think, are, are learning from each other in this process and are growing um, with each other in this process. I think that's, uh, but you're right, Madeline, when you, when you drive into a town, if the town has a sister city, it usually is right underneath where it says, welcome to Missoula. There's a little sign that says, sister city, uh, you know, Neckargemund or Palmerston North. And so this is true for uh, anywhere in the world, um, sort of an international way of, of, uh, of showing that connection is that people have these little signs up that tell uh, visitors that they are connected somewhere in the world. Yeah, I wonder if Missoula's connection is a little unique because I think, uh, so I grew up in Minnesota and you you drive up north and a lot of the towns up there, um, their sister cities are other small Swedish um, or Norwegian towns. And uh, that's where, uh, you know, a lot of the the white people who live there, that's, you know, generations back, you know, who settled those areas. So um, I can't really call up that city and be like, hey, how'd you get a sister city? But um, but I imagine that it's maybe more like family ties that yeah. over time evolved. So it's very interesting that Missoula's are very um, education. And, and, it, and the question then is, Madeline, if Missoula would not have the University of Montana, uh, one could one could uh, question: Would we have those two sister cities? Because they could clearly be traced back to an educational connection in the beginning. And one could even argue that uh, the whole reason why we have these programs are first and foremost uh, education. And so, if we wouldn't have uh, the university, um, probably those connections would have never. Uh, been made that way anyway. They might have come through, you know, somebody traveling there, that, that could be, but they probably would have not happened uh, the way they did because you needed this 
faculty exchange that I was talking about earlier, and you needed sort of this this initial connection that had something to do with education. Mm -hmm. The benefits, of course, um, are, when you think about it, is, um, you know, ranges from nurturing an atmosphere in which community involvement and development creates uh, the foundations for growth opportunities in a variety of sectors and, um, you know, providing opportunities for uh, citizens, like I said, um, uh, high school students as well as professionals to, uh, to have these exchange opportunities. With Germany, there's of course the language learning component as well uh, for both sides, uh, for the Neckargemün students that come to Missoula uh, to uh, perfect their English skills and, and the other way around. Um, with Palmerston North, there isn't so much because people in Palmerston North speak English, but um, because of the native uh, community, the Maori uh, indigenous people in, in uh, New Zealand, uh, they are very interested in uh, language preservation and language teaching the same way uh, that um, uh, Native Americans are uh, here in the state of Montana. And so there's, there's also a unique language connection that way uh, that um, has brought uh, actually students over the, the, the time uh, from here to Palmerston North and from Palmerston North to the University of Montana, just for that indigenous language component. Uh, so, do you want to talk a little bit about the uh, K through twelve education component, then? Absolutely. So, so this was, as I said earlier, uh, global and cultural affairs has four pillars. Um, we can put a check mark on the sister city one because that one's covered. Uh, <laughs> then there is um, uh, a, a a branch that focuses on um, on basically improving workplace communication and collaboration and um, well helping diverse work teams um, with their communication and collaboration when we think about different cultures being represented in a community so there is a city um, and county employee training component where, um, uh, you know, we offer uh, cultural sensitivity training um, to uh, city employees. And I think that was important to uh, the mayor uh, that, that this is something that um, uh, is available, especially for those city employees that are working, you know, probably, uh, um, uh, parks and Rec uh, comes to mind, um, or um, other city offices that have a lot to do with people. And especially when you think about, uh, you know, the summertime uh, through tourism and people uh, coming from all over the place, uh, from many different cultural and ethnic backgrounds to Missoula, to sort of, you know, help people a little bit understand uh, cultural diversity and improve through that improve um, uh, you know workplace uh, communication uh, 
uh, and collaboration. And then um, the branch that you just mentioned, or the third pillar, is an outreach program that offers services to Missoula County Public Schools. And um, that service uh, currently, um, well, uh, I've worked with, I think, seven schools this last year uh, with about 30 teachers, um, provided over 200 seminars, and inspired over 600 uh, kids in K through 12 through seminars that um, I offer that are basically global and intercultural um, in nature. And I work with the teachers to uh, connect the seminars to the curriculum. Um, and it probably usually is in the area of social studies, but uh, it can basically connect to anything. It connect, could connect to a language class, let's say. Um, when I uh, offer these seminars at Hellgate High School, I go through uh, the individual that is teaching uh, German at Hellgate High School and connected with that. If I teach it at the uh, middle school level um, or an elementary, uh, then it connects to other, probably a geography, uh, a geography unit where it's, a, it's about getting kids an idea of, you know, place and space in the world. And the fact that the world is, um, is, uh, is large. And, uh, and, and if you're growing up and you're thinking, you know, Missoula, Montana, that's probably your universe uh, up to a certain age. But then the idea of in third and fourth grade introducing sort of a world concept to the kids, uh, talking about um, you know the different continents and different cultures living on those continents and how they have interacted over time, and and in a way looking at the American society as a good example of a very multicultural uh, society. And so uh, that outreach program has been very successful, and it's because the teachers uh, want this in the classroom. So, you know, when I offer these, there's, with every year, there's more demand because teachers talk to each other. Um, this somehow, uh, you know, the word spreads and then I get contacted as I did uh, last year in the fall um, from the IB uh, coordinator at Washington Middle School that said, I, I've heard of you offering these seminars in other schools, and I'm wondering if you could add Washington Middle School uh, to your, to your uh, teaching group, and I did, and so then it was offered at Washington Middle School. I do have a question. How do you make, um, or do you have a strategy, uh, strategy, excuse me, um, for making the idea of other cultures and that there's, um, there's, you know, cultures within America, but also outside of um, America, because for me personally, I was very lucky. My parents traveled a lot, and so I got to travel a lot with my parents. Um, but even then, I think uh, America can be kind of a cultural monolith, and we um, export our culture much more than a lot of other countries do. Um, it seems like uh, almost no matter where you travel, 
people will know something about American culture, about American pop culture, about the TV shows we're watching, that kind of stuff. Um, whereas most Americans don't know, you know, the most popular thing happening most other places. So I wonder how you, how you make that tangible for, for students, especially when they're so young. Right. Well, I think with all due respect to, um, uh, to this country, when you look at it uh, geographically, um, you only have uh, two other countries bordering the United States, Canada to the north and Mexico to the south. The other two sides, east and west, is water. So no connection there. And one could argue that, you know, Canadian culture uh, is not all that different from Northern American culture, eh? I mean, it's, yeah. you know, I mean, it's... I mean, especially as someone who grew up in Minnesota, uh, the joke was that Minnesota was Canada. Um, that's exactly my point, is that, you know, there's not a whole lot of cultural... Uh, difference there. There is not a whole lot of adjustment. I'm sure that if we would, if we would uh, ask somebody that uh, you know lives in Toronto uh, or in Quebec or someplace Montreal about uh, their diet, about their um, you know uh, what they do, um, how they clothe themselves. I mean, all of that would probably be fairly similar. So that really leaves then. Um, the connection to Latin, Middle, and South America uh, as the only cultural connection that is quite different, right? Uh, one could argue that that's not a whole lot to really sort of have, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of connection or a lot of insight into other cultures. It's basically because of the geographic location. Now, like you said. There are people that are very fortunate uh, that they can travel uh, at a young age through, you know, student exchanges, Peace Corps, uh, what have you. Uh, and then professionally, there are lots of people that work for uh, larger organizations, companies, firms that have international operations and satellite offices all over the world. And so those people, um, then the military, of course, uh, and, and its branches, uh, those people uh, typically have an international experience, but for many people, uh, it's not. You're absolutely right. And so when I think of countries in Europe, for example, and, and Germany, um, I was born and raised there, is a good example. Um, while not landlocked, uh, it is surrounded by quite a few European neighbors. Um, but there are countries that are landlocked, meaning they have no water access anywhere. And they might have, you know, 10, 10 different borders around their country. Now, I mean, naturally, that's why you have a much greater cultural mix and a cultural understanding uh, when you look inside the European Union. Uh, you know, people, I mean, you get in the car and you drive two or three hours and, uh, and you could easily actually go in those two or three hours to, you know, a couple different countries. Um, so there is much more cultural 
sort of mixing going on of people moving around? Yeah, I mean, I lived in Europe about this time last year. And I remember I boarded a bus um, in Copenhagen and I departed the bus 16 hours later in Prague. There you go. Proves uh, my point. Yeah, I drove in. We, this had to be one of the most exciting things that happened to me. I like called my mom because my sure. bus that I was riding, that I was riding, drove onto a ferry and we had to get off the you know the bus and so now we were on this ferry and nobody had told me this was going to happen right um and so i was quite excited but and then you know i drove through we drove through berlin in the middle of the night right um and yeah i was like wow i've just been through like three or four countries um right and but that's the amount of time it would take for me right now to drive back to where i grew up <laughs> right and, and that's exactly, I mean, that's exactly the point. I could drive from here uh, to, um, you know, the border of, of Montana and North Dakota and what I would drive 10 hours probably, roughly. Um, and, uh, you know, and I'm still in Montana. I haven't, I haven't really sort of moved much uh, geographically. I'm still in the same state, um, still, you know, a lot of the same landscape. Uh, and, uh, you know, still, uh, English speakers. Uh, so yeah. you do the same thing in Europe. You drive 10 hours like your example just now, and you are changing completely, uh, you know, the geographic, uh, locale. You're, you're changing completely the topography. Uh, you might even change completely the climate, uh, that you started out in if you're, starting from the northern part of Europe for 10 hours, you're going to be in the Mediterranean and, uh, you know, you're, you're in a much warmer climate. You go through several different language groups uh, in your journey. I mean, it's just, it's much more compressed. It's much, there's much more density going on in Europe population-wise, but also culturally. Yeah. And, and I think that what I'm trying to do with this outreach program is, is not so much the idea of, you know, that those students in elementary, middle or high school are necessarily going to travel outside of the United States, um, are going to work for an international company down the road. I mean, who knows, right? This is not the goal. The goal is that intercultural will come to you. Intercultural will come and find you. And you better be prepared to interact with people that are culturally different, right? Um, and so it's more the idea of actually internally, how can knowing about other cultural groups and its members help us to communicate and collaborate uh, easier, uh, more effective and efficient? And how can it reduce stress and anxiety? The old idea of, you know, what you don't know, you might fear. But once you know it better, there's no reason to fear because you kind of go, oh, yeah, I, I understand. I, you know, I, I get where they're coming from. And, and so not, not threatening to me at all. I, I get it. That's, you know, part of that person's uh, culture or tradition or custom or value or whatever it may be. So I think that's part of 
of these programs is to just sort of open the mind to that there is more out there than what meets the eye at first. And, and then how people use this down the road, if they do go and are inspired and have a connection to participate in a study abroad program or join the Peace Corps or whatever, then I would hope that this is helpful. But even if they don't, even for people that will, uh, that will live, work, and retire in Montana, um, it still, I think, provides the value of being able to understand your own uh, diverse society a little better. If that may be interacting with uh, the Native American population, if that may be interacting with African American, uh, the Latino population, I mean, you know, you, you get my point. It's, it's sort of, it can only be beneficial to know more about how others, um, how others function. I have never heard to this day a disadvantage of, uh, of global and intercultural knowledge. It only helps people to understand others a little better and sometimes even themselves in the process. Yeah, I find that uh, is where my traveling has kind of helped me the most because you, you don't realize that anybody else is doing it differently than you are until you until you see it, and um, and I think that's especially true for for cultures or large systems because you think, oh, the system is so massive it could never be different, and then you right. go somewhere where um, the system is different and those within it have have accepted that and have, you know, feel right. that it is normal. You're like, right. oh, all of and these I, different things are possible, actually. Right. And I make it a point of, in all my teaching, if I teach in elementary, middle, or high school, or at the university level, I just finished a, an intensive um, MBA uh, graduate seminar for the College of Business that was an evening class that I taught for a week um, from six to nine in the evening. Uh, I make it a point in all of those classes to look at the similarities first and then at the differences. Because when you really look at other cultures, you will find that um, we have much more in common than what sets us apart. Uh, there, there may be, you know, a few things that are, that are really significant, no doubt, but they're also on the human level, you know, we all thrive for the same sort of five uh, accommodations, if you will, right? Uh, access to clean water, access to food, um, access to a safe environment, uh, you know, access to some kind of a compassionate uh, peer group. I mean, those are the things that no matter who you are and where you come from, they'll always be the same. Yeah, and I think it's something that a lot of people know, but they don't realize that they know. I find uh, people that I know when they go to a place for the first time, especially, you know, when if they're able to leave the country and stuff, um, the most common thing you hear is, yeah, they're, they're just like us. Um, and I think sometimes 
my initial reaction is to say, well, of course, but, you know, I think we all know that inside, but sometimes it takes us to uh, see it before we can really understand. I totally agree with you, Madeline. I totally agree with you. It's a process. And I think that when you started early and you are exposed to, uh, you know, another cultural perspective, and that could be done in many different ways. I mean, you could read a book, uh, you know, uh, you could read a, a book by uh, an author uh, that lived in a different country and wrote about what mattered to him or her. Uh, you could watch a documentary on the Discovery Channel. Uh, you could talk to your neighbor uh, that lives uh, across the hallway or uh, down the street that uh, that seems to be different, right? Um, either language-wise or uh, uh, in some other form, uh, and you might say, "Hey, I, I'm you know I'm a Missoulian. Where are you from?" And you you could learn about other cultures and uh, the world in many different ways, but it's oftentimes sort of getting the initial spark. Uh, and, and getting the initial sort of interest or getting hooked somehow. And that's why I think people that have participated in a study abroad program uh, for the rest of their lives, they're saying, I want to do that again. This was so amazing. And I'm sure that, you know, your experience uh, going from Copenhagen to Prague, um, you would do that again, or you would do something similar again because well, it was probably life-changing, right? Yeah, I mean, to prove your own point, um, so I lived, I was abroad last year for eight months and I lived for six months in Oslo. I have some family there um, and I was studying abroad. Um, right. And actually I was supposed to leave in a couple days to go back to Europe for oh. five weeks. Um, but now oh. that looks like I will be doing that um, next summer hopefully sure. luckily this whole thing started before you know i had booked too many things but i did have to move my plane ticket so sure so yeah and now now it's all about going back and, and visiting friends right and stuff and it's it's really interesting connections you made yeah being able to humanize places like for example i went to Belarus when I was living abroad um, I actually went for a concert which I feel like is a very young 20-somethings thing to say um, but most people in that country don't speak English they learn English the same way most Americans learn another language which is basically if you don't choose to study it in college or live abroad you you don't retain <laughs> um, much I took four years of Spanish and I can uh, read some signs uh, if I were abroad, but, um, and so I was able to hang out with one of, I had a friend in Oslo who was, who had grown up there in the town I was visiting, um, and so I basically had one of his friends tour guide me around because I couldn't read any of the signs, um, and there, the first question they asked me was, did you know about Belarus before you came here? Like, did you even know we were a country and right. I, I don't think I did <laughs> right so it is amazing how many how many things you learn and um and now I think I'm much more likely to try to live abroad again now that I've done it one time 
Exactly. And that's what I've heard over the last 20 years from countless students um, that, uh, you know, I, um, for many years, I used to participate in the study abroad, uh, sort of pre-departure orientation for students. So whenever UM students had signed up to go abroad, there was um, a whole program that was put together by uh, the director of study abroad at the university. And um, she was always kind enough to ask me to, um, to come in and sort of do a seminar that focused on what to expect when you get to the place that you're going. And it wasn't ever a specific sort of, you know, here is what to expect when you get to Italy. Here is what to expect when you get to uh, uh, Japan. It was much more in general, it's gonna be different when you get to your final destination. And here is likely what's gonna be different for you. And that's true for any location that you go to. But for many students uh, that study at the University of Montana, of course, there are students from within the state, right? So they probably have never traveled uh, outside of the United States. And so they weren't familiar with this concept of, ooh, what might be different? Probably it's just the same in Italy than it is in Montana, or probably it's just, you know, life is the same in, in Asia than it is in Montana. How would you know if you have never gone there? And so I participated in these uh, study abroad uh, sort of pre-departure trainings. And, and over the years, countless students, you know, when they came back and I would run into them on campus, they would say, this was really helpful because I had no idea that it would be different. Similar to what you just said, Madeline, you don't know when you don't know a place, what can be different, right? So, and then the same thing I've done for uh, the Office of Foreign Student and Scholar Services at the university uh, for many years for incoming international students. And because I have been one myself, so I've gone through this, but one could argue having been born and raised in Germany, culturally, is it really that different in Montana? No, it's not, because a lot of the people that settled in Montana came from Europe. And so, you know, there's lots of cultural connection. But imagine somebody that comes from Japan. Imagine somebody that comes from the Middle East. Uh, imagine somebody that comes from an African country. How different it is, uh, you know, language-wise, culture-wise, uh, food-wise, uh, to live in Montana. And so I always enjoyed interacting with the, the students that had newly arrived on campus and to sort of talk a little bit about what's coming their way, because I had gone through it myself. Yes, before uh, we wrap our conversation up, I did want to um, ask you a question that, I don't know, you may have gotten a lot, but um, how did you end up in Montana? And I, I especially think this, um, for example, when I was growing up, I lived in a tiny suburban town in Minnesota, and we would have exchange students into my high school. Um, and I found my town quite boring. So it always amazed me that these students were coming and deciding to spend a year in my town. Granted, I think Missoula is much more interesting than the town I grew up in. Um, but it's still coming to 
Montana, which is not, um, I mean, even within the United States, it's not really regarded as a, I mean, it's a kind of a place you come visit for um, our right. national parks, and then you go back right. to a bigger place. Right. I agree. Well, um, the simple answer to your question, Madeline, how did I get to Montana? Um, it was a family connection for me. And, and so, as I said before, my family is from um, Wiesbaden, Germany. That's where I was born and raised. And um, the family connection came about because after uh, the Second World War, my mother's brother left Wiesbaden, um, got on a ship, and uh, arrived uh, on the East Coast. And he, uh, he met a young lady on the ship from Hamilton, Montana. Out of all the places you could uh, meet somebody, there was a young lady from Hamilton, Montana on that ship. Uh, he fell in love and settled in Hamilton, needless to say, um, and lived there in the 1950s and the 1960s. Um, he later moved to Great Falls and lived there until 2010 when he passed away. And in the 1980s, while I was still in high school in Germany, my parents and I visited him and his family twice during uh, summer breaks. So I was studying English in high school in Germany. Uh, and my parents, although they spoke a little English, they said, hey, you know, wouldn't it be great to, uh, you know, visit the uncle uh, in, uh, in the United States and, um, you know, now that you speak the language and it might be good practice for you. And so we went twice in the 1980s while I was in school and it gave us a chance to explore Montana, the surrounding states. Uh, we went and saw Mount Rushmore. We uh, went up to Glacier Park. I mean, we spent a lot of time uh, while we were here for, you know, a couple of weeks visiting with, with my uncle and just getting to know Montana. Um, one evening, and I remember this vividly, uh, in Great Falls, my uncle asked what my plans were for after high school. I said, what, what are you planning to do? And I said, well... Um, uh, I'm interested in, in broadcast journalism, in film production. I worked in Germany uh, while I was going to school um, on weekends at a big TV station. And so I had this connection to television and, and film. And so I told him uh, that that was my interest of, of studying. And he mentioned that the University of Montana had just opened a radio TV studio center uh, to study broadcast journalism, just brand new. Uh, and, um, and that was, you know, that was the beginning. Uh, he said, um, you know, let's take a day trip to Missoula and, uh, and let's check it out. And just sort of, you know, you can take a look. And so we did. Um, uh, we visited campus and my parents uh, and I got a campus tour. We met some faculty members, we toured the journalism school, and my parents were very supportive of the idea of me studying abroad. Uh, and it, you know, it was appealing to them. I think all that Missoula had to offer, um, that it was a, a safe place, that uh, you know, it, uh, uh, it was a small enough community to, um, to you know, live, 
not in a big city with big city issues and and dangers. I think that you know matters to parents when you're uh, when you have a child that has interest in studying abroad. And so um, we went back to Germany uh, for me to finish high school, and um, I used the time to to research a little bit about U.S. universities, uh, you know, specifically uh, those schools that offered uh, broadcast film uh, study programs. And, um, and, and mind you, in 1987 and 1988, this was all pre-email, pre-Google. So, you know, it wasn't as easy as to, you know, type in uh, universities with a, uh, with a broadcast study program. And so this meant that, um, you know, I actually had to go uh, to libraries to do research, to find out what was offered. And my high school friend, Daniel Bochnar, was instrumental in helping me. And I remember this because uh, Daniel uh, remained a very good friend to this day, but he sort of had an interest. We would go to Frankfurt to the, what was called the American House, it was a research, uh, a resource center, um, and we would do uh, research, um, put info request letters together to universities in the states, send them out. They would send, you know, the old-fashioned way, an envelope with with brochures and stuff. Today, you get pointed to a website, but in the old days, this was much more uh, work intensive. You know, you would send out a letter, and then you would hear probably a month later. But I did all of this while I was you know, going to finishing up high school. And, um, and then, you know, I, Daniel and I would look through the replies and Daniel had a family connection in San Francisco where his aunt and his uncle have lived for many decades. And he was excited for this opportunity for me and was really sort of, it was great to do that all with him. And UM came out ahead, uh, one of the oldest journalism schools in the country, very affordable, uh, again, you know, a safe place. Um, and, uh, you know, recreationally, I grew up skiing in Germany. So I thought, hey, you know, uh, there are mountains uh, uh, close by, so I could probably go skiing here and there. Um, and then the family connection, again, the uncle in Great Falls that I would visit or he would come to Missoula, make sure that I was okay. So I think for my parents, this was really important to know that I was taken care of, that I had a, a go-to person if there was an issue, that kind of thing. And um, well, and uh, I applied to UM, got accepted, started my undergraduate education in the fall quarter of 1989. My parents have visited in the last 30 years over 10 times. And my friend Daniel has visited uh, a couple times as well and has even brought his wife and his three sons to come to uh, Missoula. Um, so that's how I came to Missoula. It was really a family connection, but then so many other things sort of fell in place and you know, sort of the stars aligned a certain way and I just knew that this was my place to, to go. And then I never left. I, you know, I did my undergraduate work and uh, then Faculty encouraged me to do a master's degree. I did that, and then a second master's degree, and then a PhD, and so I have four degrees from UM. Um, they're all sort of within the same area of, uh, of media and instructional media, teaching, and so they all really connect. 
but I, I just found Missoula to be uh, a wonderful place to live, to raise a family, and, uh, and that's why I'm still here. Um, well, and then quick before we go, um, I'm looking at the pillars, and I think we've only made it, it through three of them. So if you want to kind of quickly go through that fourth pillar. Sure. And, and I, I, I think I touched a little bit on it early on okay. when I was talking about the fact that the community uh, pillar uh, is one that isn't uh, very active right now because of the pandemic. But you are absolutely right. We only talked about uh, the three pillars, and that was the sister city services, yes. the training services for city and county employees, and the K through 12 outreach program. There is the, uh, the services for the Missoula community, which, um, which is uh, an important one because it uh, enhances and implements um, community outreach um, with training programs on intercultural awareness and global competence, um, as well as activities and events that are specific to global issues and topics and um, really reinforces this existing bridge between the diverse communities uh, in the Garden City and, um, and uh, helps the diverse communities uh, hopefully um, communicate and collaborate uh, better together, have a greater understanding, um, bring, uh, sort of I see this as sort of like a window to the world, you know, bring the world to uh, Missoula and open uh, this window to the world for Missoulians. And as I said earlier, I've done this through the Worldview film series in collaboration with the Roxy Theater, um, through the International Community Speaker Series, uh, also in collaboration with the Roxy Theater. And it's all about, um, you know, supporting cultural integration of diverse individuals and groups into the Missoula community, um, facilitating a variety of culturally engaging public events, presentations. Um, one could argue that uh, the aforementioned German Fest or New Zealand Days uh, sort of almost connects within the pillar structure than the pillar uh, that um, focuses on sister city uh, connections than with a pillar that focuses on community development. But um, it's, yeah, it's, the, the goal is to ignite a compassionate community that enjoys the differences among us and um, celebrates the similarities and, uh, you know, maintains an openness uh, to uh, dialogue that builds partnerships is really sort of the idea. Uh, well, thank you so much for sitting down with me and talking about Arts Missoula and your work there. Um, I found, I, it's a name that I've heard all the time for the, the years that I've been living here. Um, but so it's nice to kind of learn more about the, the programming and everything. Well, I appreciate your interest, uh, Madeline. It's, uh, it's always nice to, to talk to people who 
uh, who care and who say, hey, what are you doing and why are you doing it? And, uh, and why are you doing it here? And I think we touched on, on all of that. And I appreciate your interest and um, your willingness to uh, put this in a podcast format so um, that other people can, uh, can also learn about Arts Missoula and the programs that um, Arts Missoula offers. Thanks for tuning in. New episodes will be dropping every week. You can listen to The Clambake on air by tuning into KBGA 89.9 Missoula, going online at kbga.org, or listening to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This episode was edited and produced by me, your host, Madeline Broom. Special thanks to Jazar for the music used in The Clambake. All music was sourced from the Free Music Archive.